I praise God by using the gifts He has given me to help serve in my community, like helping out on Wednesday nights for HSM, and using them to be kind to everyone and just love them like Jesus. Courtney, how do you praise Jesus? I praise God um, through musical worship. I love music. It really hits my soul in a special way. It helps quiet my mind and um, connect with God in a really special way. So that is my, that's the way I praise God. Good morning. I've uh, learned a few things already. We're building a log cabin. I do want to coach, and my wife does use the word cutify. So there you go. <laughs> We can close. Coming together is um, it's always a challenge. If you don't uh, agree with me, think about the last time you and your family tried to decide which movie you were going to watch together. You might be, you probably, you might be more mature than me. You're, I'm guaranteeing you, you are more mature than I am in this process. And one of the really enduring marks of my immaturity is that I make it quite known to my family that I did not choose the movie that we are watching. When my daughter was turning, I think, 15, her idea of a birthday party was, me and all my friends want to go to this opening night of this movie, and then afterwards, we're all going to come spend the night in my sm our small house. And I'm like, that sounds awesome. Dad, will you take us to this movie and we need rides back because none of them drove. So the movie was called The Fault in Our Stars. If you've seen this movie, it's about these two teenagers that meet in this support group. They both have uh, a terminal disease. But in this movie, they fall deeply in love. Now, also, all of these girls had read the book and had memorized the book multiple times going into this movie, so they were anticipating amazing things. It was opening night, and the movie started, I don't know, nine o'clock, but we had to be there at seven because they had to get the perfect seats. So we're in the theater, and as it filled up entirely with 15-year-old girls and me and one other guy that seemed to get dragged in there. There was this moment in this movie that they'd all been looking forward to. When the male lead shows up on screen, the entire theater went, oh. That is exact impersonation of a 15-year-old girl. Sorry, come on. Of my daughter and the 300 other ones that were in the theater at the time. And then about 30 minutes into this thing, there was this moment where the, lead, the girl says to her, her name was Hazel, and she says to Augustus, who is the lead 17-year-old boy, why are you staring at me? And he says, because you are beautiful. And every girl instantaneously went, oh. I couldn't help myself, I laughed out loud. I wasn't anticipating it. After the movie, Anna goes, Dad, I heard you laugh. <laughs> the other dude had fallen asleep by that point. But here's my other part of my personality. I just tell you the truth. You know, when I actually let go of, I don't want to be in this theater. When I actually let go of, I do not understand the emotions of preteen girls. And actually just started watching this movie that moment where you are supposed to have those tears flow, where that moment when everything comes together, I may have had some allergies during that time. 
they were flowing. And I sat there, Lisa's looking at me, because we sat a few rows behind my daughter. I, I was doing this, and I'm like, dang it. And I would pretend I was sneezing and coughing, but they were flowing. You see, together, whatever it is, we have to let go of what we want sometimes, of what we think. You see, together is letting go of how, what I, how I and you see things in order to see things through the eyes of other people. And as we do that, we all try to see things through the eyes of Jesus to pursue his way. It is then we begin to experience really what being together is all about. Let me pray for us. Father, we have come, we have gathered, we have heard, we have praised you, we sing to you, we join the worship in heaven that says, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. We heard from our church families how you pressed upon some to break into the culture and to break in and bless and to renew. May their testimonies be real in our hearts. God, help us in your name. Amen. For a few minutes this morning, I'm going to build some foundation of what we're going to be talking about the next few weeks. We've been diving into the book of Mark and really understand what Jesus said and what he did. And we're taking about five weeks building off of that, about talking about what it means to be together, what God has for the church, but more, I think, what God might have for this church. The early church that we see described in the New Testament, a lot of it was built and initiated because of these missionary trips, three or four or so that Paul had taken. And he went out and had seen this in Acts chapter 13 through 20. And he, from these relationships that he had in this church is that you could look in the book of Acts that he built with these different places, come a lot of letters, which is also part of our New Testament. See, Paul wrote letters to these beautiful churches in Corinth and Galatia in Ephesus, and Philippi, and Thessalonica. So that's when you look at your New Testament, like you'll see Philippians and Galatians. Those are all letters that Paul wrote back to a church. You know, and all those letters are written with a purpose, to encourage, to correct, to realign, to teach. Many were responses from questions that churches may have had. How do we deal with this pressure? How do we deal with this situation? And those letters, what's really important, whenever you read the Bible, my friends, those letters are written to a specific group of people. Those letters weren't written to me, but they are relatable and transferable truths to all of us. What's so important whenever we read scripture is like, what would that original audience have heard? And when we do that, we start to see there's something powerful here. Throughout this series, we're gonna use just the opening of a letter that he wrote to this church in Philippi. These people that, man, he had something deep love for them, some deep encouragement. And we're just going to keep looking at these opening verses. Well, let me read them to you and then pick apart about five words. He says this, Paul and Timothy, this is the opening of the letter, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, my God, every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is our guide for the next five weeks. For many of you that may be just like, well, that just sounds like the opening of a letter, those words I've heard before. But even words like grace and peace, which we're gonna get into next week, that is a bold statement. Because grace is a common greeting to the Greeks, and peace was the common greeting to the Jews. So even in that, Paul's saying, we have to come together. I want to pick apart this phrase a bit. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. What is there to pick apart in that? First of all, Paul starts off with a pretty bold claim. The claim isn't about Jesus per se. The claim is about himself. He starts off by saying this. The Greek word is doulos. I am the doulos of Christ Jesus. You see, in modern translations, we have this thing where potentially the word servant sounds a lot better than the word slave. But really that word means slave. Like I have given up all freedoms. I am a bond slave. So Paul is saying my authority comes because I am a slave. There is no one who'd raise their hand and say, man, I want to be a slave. So what is Paul doing? Paul's laying down that he is the absolute possession of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has loved him and bought him with a price, and because of that, he can never belong to anyone else. Paul's laying down that he owes absolute obedience to Jesus Christ. He also lays down he gives himself the same title as the Old Testament prophets, the same given to Moses and Joshua and David. This is the highest title of honor Wait, the highest title of honor is slave? In the kingdom of God, it is. What is upside down, what seems to be the priority seat is actually the one who lets go the most. Man, that's an opening of a letter. Paul had every right to say, listen here, you guys, you need to listen to me. Do you know who I am? And he says, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to Jesus. But then he continues, to God's holy people. This, if anything, I want you to hear. And this is so important whenever we go, what would the original people have heard? This phrase, God's holy people, was reserved for an individual thousands of years before, Abraham and Isaac. There is these people, and then God called the nation of the Jewish nation coming out of Egypt, you are my holy people. And now for the church to hear, you are God's holy people. They're like, wait, 
that's reserved for somebody else. Paul's like, nope, we're all together. Our ears might hear this word holy and think pious, right? We don't really know what to do with this word holy. I have a lot of friends who say, Dale, if I came into your church, the building might collapse. Because they're thinking, though, I have to be a certain kind of person. As if we all float around with angelic wings. And I mean, some of you do. I don't. I try, but I can't get off the ground. This word holiness is not piety. It's not perfection. It's not like you're walking around with a certain glow. It's far from that case. In Greek, this word hagios is actually means to be set apart, to be set apart for a purpose. Who here wants a purpose? I want a purpose. You go to TED Talk and you search life purpose. There's like 5,000 talks on discovering your life purpose. This is something we all want to do. And in this letter, Paul says, you are God's holy people, church, that is set apart. And by being set apart, you have a distinct purpose. Maybe the Old Testament might help a little bit. The word that's often used is kadash, which kind of has the same meaning of being set apart. You see, the Old Testament priests were set apart. They had a different purpose than the others. I'm pulling you apart. The tithe, the one-tenth of everything that we have that we give was to be set apart for a purpose. The temple had a holy place which was set apart for a purpose. The ancient Jewish nation was called holy to be set apart as a people group, but they refused to live in what God had asked them to live into. And when Jesus came into the world to be with them, they actually rejected him and said, now all these things that were meant to be holy is going all to the church. The privileges and the responsibilities were now given to the church. This gathering of Jews and Gentiles, of women and of men, of slaves and of free. The transition, Paul says, you are now the holy people. Let that sink in for a second. You're like, I don't deserve to be holy. I don't deserve, I don't feel holy but it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God that nobody should boast. Your purpose and your identity in Jesus is now you are the holy ones of God. It really seems like being together on this might be kind of important. It seems like it's something we should do so let's talk about a few things, and I'm inviting you to think, to discover. Jesus is on a walk with his guys. Maybe some others were there, they're not mentioned. They go into this very uh, kind of distinct place. We've talked about this a little bit in the book of Mark, though it's ahead of us. I'll read you a section from Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, for you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, and here it is, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In this conversation with his disciples, Jesus is asking him, who am I? Who do you see that I am? But he also says, I want to tell you about what I'm going to build. Now, when Jesus says, I'm going to build this church, he's not thinking about a distinct singular church. He's talking about actually the words he used in Greek is called the ekklesia, which is the total gathering of all believers, all the church together. But if Jesus is building the ekklesia and he cares what that looks like, he also cares what this church looks like. He just does. You see, knowing what the Bible says about Jesus, what are the characteristics that would be a part of anything that Jesus would build? You know, while we're thinking about this, and I threw this at you, what, what should a church look like that Jesus builds? We're tempted to think of all the things, the parts of Jesus that we like, and we're like, that's what he would want in a church. You know, I know firsthand Jesus likes this kind of music. That's what he wants. Oh, no, no, no. If Jesus was here today, he would probably have long drum solos. Come on, I'm having fun. If Jesus was here today, he'd have this kind of balcony seating. If Jesus was here today, he'd want me to have a better place, a better parking spot. But even if it was reasonable what you were thinking about, don't settle there. Push further, maybe deeper into the unexpected. Make sure your thoughts about what a church should be isn't your opinion. Where are they coming from? Let go of the things that maybe that you have loved of the past, of any experience that you have had, because God has something new for you. When we do that in our personal lives, we're not experiencing new. More on that another time. You see, when something has our name on it, we have a certain expectation, I would think. This is true for architects, it's true for artists, web designers, coaches, whatever it is, your name on the paper that you turned in, we want it to reflect ourselves. If you're a part of a group project in high school, which some of you love because you're hoping to get the smart kid to do that. My daughter hated it because it all went on her. She's like, if my name's on this, it better be this way. And I'm like, good luck to you. We have that expectation. God has the expectations. What I do know about Jesus is that he's not building a church that gathers where everyone thinks exactly the same. And they just gather based on mutual compatibility. He's not building a church that huddles in fear or self-protection from the world. He is not building a church that gathers of people with a singular approach to life. I don't see that in him. You see, a holy individual, that if you are in Christ, take this in for a second. God calls you holy, set apart. He knows our brokenness, he knows our sin, but he goes, I see it through the forgiveness of Jesus. You are holy. A holy individual means God has specific purposes for you. He's got a plan for you. 
And so many times we're like, God, if you just told me what your plan is, I'd do it. Hmm. Probably wouldn't. <laughs> it might scare you to death. If God told me 30 years ago, God, Dale, this is my plan for you. You're going to be the youth pastor at this church for nine years, and then you're going to go to Maui. Oh, that sounds awesome. But then I'm going to pull you back from Maui. Why, God? What did I do? And then I'm going to give you this disease. Good luck with that. And then you're going to come back to Calvary Church and be an executive pastor and do lots of things. And then you're going to hit a point where you're going to go to San Francisco for four years and do a few things. But then I'm going to pull you back to the same church for the third time. I'm like, God, you are crazy. Why can't I just stay in one spot? Nope, that's not my plan. See, I would not be standing here today if I knew all this plan. I'd be like, ah, that ain't God. But God has something set apart for you. You know why I think what God does? God's not up there crossing his finger. This is in pencil. This is one of those Dale things, so just whatever you want to do with this. He's not up there in heaven crossing his fingers, hoping you get it. He's not like on this clue hunt. Like, I hope he sees the random little hint I gave him, but this is who I want him to be. Did he get it? Oh, he's so stupid. <laughs> no, God's like, hey, you are set apart. I set you apart. What do you want to do? In your identity of who you are, the Holy Spirit is in you. Here, I'm going to up this one. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, you know, that thing at Easter where everybody comes and looks for eggs. I don't get that part. But... The same Holy Spirit that rose my son from the dead, I'm going to put in you. Now what do you want to do? And we're like, oh, you know, if you just told me what you wanted, I'd do it. He's like, oh, you got the Holy Spirit. What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? As a church, a holy people means we and all who join us have a specific purpose together. There are ones that have always been in place. There are ones that he's inserting now, new things, and in the future as the Spirit continues to work. You see, this life with the Spirit, some people are really scared around this because they're like, wait, are you saying that's a thing? Like, things might happen that I can't explain. Yes. There are so many things that happen that I can't explain. Because if I can explain it, they're not very exciting. They're just like this big. You see, this thing with the Spirit is actually an act of resistance. Let me show you. Paul uses a strategic word, the word but, to describe the way of the Spirit. In one of his letters that he's writing to one of these churches in Galatia, he writes this. You see, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, having a good time, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this do not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's forbearance, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. You see, this life that we are called as holy people is the spirit with us is like it's an act of resistance to our temptations of the flesh. Now let me show you something. So often we would go, here are the fruits. 
like these individual fruits of the Spirit, like you can go to the store and pick one. How many times have you said, here's the list, I'm going to work on this one? My friends, there aren't fruits of the Spirit. There is a fruit of the Spirit. This is the most amazing tasting fruit. Imagine if you found a fruit that had the perfect balance of all the fruits, whatever it is. Now, I know that might be kind of crazy, but everything in one bite, it's like it's all of this. The work of the Spirit is all of these things at the same time. It's not a pick and choose buffet. And you're like, whoa, that feels heavy. It is not up to you to do it. It's up to you to allow it. Imagine the markings of an individual or a church that lives in. Here's the fruit that he has for us. You see, to live in the Spirit is to resist the works or acts of the flesh. Over and over, the Bible teaches us to pursue goodness and turn away from evil. The acts of the flesh are obvious, writes Paul's. Actively following Jesus means resisting the sinfulness and toxicity of these acts and allow the Spirit to work within you so that you can experience the life of being set apart for him. So when Paul writes to these people, and as I say to you, you are holy people, it's not an act of will. He does not withhold his Holy Spirit from you who's also saying, here's the fruit. Wives, would you like to be married to somebody who is patient, loving, forbearing, the fruit of the Spirit? You'd be like, yes. Husbands, would you like to be married to a spouse who has the same things? Most of the husbands are like, say that again? Come on, I'm still having fun. Yes. Would you like to have friends? Would you like to walk into a place? And that was the fruit. Together is letting go. Letting God work. You see, a gathering focused on being formed by the way of Jesus and a gathering of people actively resisting and humbly following the way of Jesus has a unique result. It doesn't look like piety. It doesn't look like self-righteousness. You know what it looks like? Empathy. It looks like compassion. And this empathy and compassion are to people, whether they're in the building, whether they've left the building, or whether they've never been in this building at all. Let me show you one final thing. Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown. Seems like he's been there a lot. But he goes into the synagogue, not sure how they did this. Maybe he raised his hand, maybe he stood up, but somehow he got to read that day. If someone offered you a chance to give a sermon or a pre, what would you say? Here's what he said. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And like a boss, 
he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So, what did Jesus just do? Together with the Spirit, and I'm doing this just to be clear. One, he starts with Scripture as truth, because that's where we start in everything. He reads from the book of Isaiah. Two, his purpose was very clear. I've come to bring good news to the poor. I'm going where others don't want to go. Three, I'm proclaiming freedom or liberation to those who are experiencing some kind of imprisonment, whether this is literal or the bondage of what sin does. Four, I've come to give sight to those who can't see. Literal, spiritually, emotionally. Five, he's come to bring freedom to the oppressed. Now what does a church look like that he would build? I'm telling you this week, I was reading this and my heart broke. Not because of what the church doesn't do, but what the church should do and can do. And honestly, how many times as a leader, I didn't push this direction. Those times are done. You see, the heart of Jesus' mission starts with Scripture, and it goes to the wounded, the neglected, the ignored, the abused, the lost, the violated, because he sees them because he has the eyes of God. I would say that if I had to choose one word to sum up Jesus' message in his hometown, let me go back to that word empathy. Empathy is the ability to feel what somebody else is feeling. Empathy allows us to exit our own feelings and enter the ones of others. Empathy is the ability to see the world through others' pain, through others' experiences, through others' fear. How often I've seen the world through my own experiences alone how small and how narrow that is. A church that proactively goes, hey, Carlos, what does the world look like to you, buddy? And I listen. Sean, what does the world look like to you? And I listen, because it matters. Students, what does the world look like to you? Because it matters. And I look at this and it seems like the churches following the way of Jesus don't simply take up one cause for one specific group. Churches following the way of Jesus develop a culture in which they hear the cries of all of the distressed, all of the wounded, and respond with active compassion. And that churches following the way of Jesus will develop an empathy radar with instinctive bias towards acts of grace, of peace, of mercy, and goodness for everyone. When I say things like this, I get notes and they're like, well, where is the acts of conviction and policy? Those are end results of things. It takes more guts to show grace and mercy 
and goodness like Jesus did to those who oppose me than it does for me to fight them. That's the church. Specifically, for Calvary. This isn't an action plan. I'm just putting a stick in the ground. One, and if you're new here this morning, welcome. One, you get to hear what I think the church should be. We are a church that has experienced significant leadership changes within the past five years. I had my part in this. And to that, I own it. And to that, I'm sorry for anyone who I hurt, for anyone who feels that hurt, that I have caused because of decisions I made. I just want you to know that. I know that God works with me. I know that God had a plan with me. But I also know decisions I made may have hurt people. And I am sorry for that. Two, we are a multi-generational church which makes us unique in current social structures that are often separated by age and interest, that is gathered in different physical spaces even before the pandemic, we were apart. Three, it's hard to read with moisture in my eyes. Three, we gathered in hundreds, if not over thousands of different places on our own during the pandemic. We did what we could do. Four, We've returned to in-person gatherings for many, online only for others, a combination of things to a few. But some, if not many, I don't know, have just left, have left this church. Many have moved away. You know what, many, we just don't even know. Five, so many people in our community and our valley need Jesus. There's space for them here. And six, we're getting back to his purpose, his purpose for us so that we can reset as needed for the present and the future. That's what being together is. So my friends, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are holy. You are set apart. Receive that. Church, you are holy people, set apart. God's like, what do you want to do? As a builder of the church, Jesus deeply cares about the focus of this church. And three, with the power of the Spirit, we are to be actively resistant to what our flesh desires and deeply empathetic and compassionate to those under the bondage of what the flesh desires. My commitment to you is that I will never push away somebody who is deeply under the bondage of sin. But with my ability is to empathize in compassion and to share truth and empathize in compassion. If I, being raised how I was raised, can learn to be empathetic and compassionate, so can you. And my wife saying amen to that, I guarantee you. We can do that. It starts there. As Paul wrote, and this is my prayer. So I read this and pray this over you, my church. 
I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God bless you, my friends. God bless you, my family. May you walk well with the Lord this week. Amen.